Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Title IX regulations as they pertain to sports require the equal treatment of female and male student athletes in the provisions of equipment and supplies, scheduling of games and practice times, travel and daily allowance, coaching, locker rooms, practice and competitive facilities, medical and training facilities, housing and dining facilities, publicity and promotions, support services, and recruitment of student athletes. Now, that's a little bit of background about Title IX. You hear the term Title IX all the time, but you don't hear very often what exactly it says. Beginning in the mid-2000s, the argument of equality between the men's and women's sports teams under the guidance of athletic director Sharon Taylor played out at Lock Haven University. Taylor became the center of several lawsuits, which questioned whether she showed bias for the women's teams over the men's due to the women's team's history of success and the men's teams not doing as well. A new book describes what happened at Lock Haven. Joining us is C. Terry Walton author of The Lost Haven of Sharon Taylor, Casualties in the Battle for Gender Equality in Sports. Mr. Walters, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here, Scott. And Sharon Taylor herself is with us. Ms. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you, but please call me Sharon. All right, I will do that, Sharon. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. You could also send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Sharon, I am going to direct the first question to you. There are several parts of your story that are unusual, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. But the one that does stand out is what I kind of described in the introduction, is that when it comes to Title IX violations or noncompliance, most often people think of the men's sports programs getting more attention, getting more money, somehow that the, the, the women's sports programs not getting as much. It's unequal. But in your case, you were accused of providing, I don't know, more resources or more attention, that the women's teams got much more attention when you were athletic director than the men's uh, teams did. Talk about that. Well, first of all, the things that you talked about are what they call the laundry list in uh, Title IX. Those are the sort of incidental things. But they also are two other major areas. One is scholarships, and the other is meeting the needs and interests. In other words, you have en enough uh, programs for both men and women based on your enrollment numbers usually. Uh, but in terms of the other things about the uh, interest and, and, and the, the uh, amount of money and everything, uh, that's just not true. And first of all, the lawsuits and things that came about were more over salaries and things like that than, than the actual uh, dollars that went to uh, student athletes. At Lock Haven, we had a, a, a situation where, of course, in any of the state schools, you cannot use any state monies, any university budgets to give scholarships to student athletes or in many ways spend it for some of the things that uh, come up in the athletics program. Our day-to-day -day budgets were pretty much, they came from the Student Government Association. So those were set up and we submitted a budget actually every year and requested a certain amount of money and then we submitted the budget for approval. And uh, those budgets were, if not uh, more money to the men, they at least tended that way. In well, terms, so can I interrupt yeah. for just one second? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest, of course, the most expensive athletic program, uh, sport and athletic program, is football. It's football, sure. And Lock Haven has a football and team. And it does, indeed. We right. had 18 varsity sports. Uh, Ten of them were for uh, women, and uh, nine, uh, eight of them were for, for men, uh, football, of course. And you look at numbers. You don't look at how many teams you have. You don't look at how many... 
you look at how many kids are, and I'm going to say kids, how many kids are in uniforms, and then that should reflect what you pretty much got in your in your uh, enrollments, uh, men and women students. Well, when you look at most colleges and most of them in the Pennsylvania state system, in the PSAC, the conference, women are often 60, 63 percent of the enrollment at our institutions these days and for the last decade or so. And so it was very difficult, and we tried to balance the uh, numbers. And, of course, football, when you have football, it probably requires about three women's teams to make up those numbers if you're looking at 90 athletes. Um, the argument wasn't that they were actually getting more money. It was that there was so much more attention. Now, I don't know what attention gets you. Uh, I'd rather have the cash myself. But when you looked at the scholarships and everything, they were clearly within the, the, the balance of what was what should have been in the men's program, what should have been in the women's program. The fact of the matter was that the coaches of women's sports at Lock Haven for most of the, well, when I took over, women were getting 11% of the scholarship dollars when I became athletic director. 11% of the, and 89% of the dollars went to men. And that was a very few dollars, let me tell you, on both sides. As more emphasis was placed on projects and, and, and raising money and things like that, both in our development area, which is totally separate from athletics, and in the teams themselves, more monies came into the programs. Frankly, the coaches of women's sports did a better job of raising money. We had difficulty raising money, unfortunately, for the football program because it had had 30, 40 years of, of just not very good records, and many of the young men who went through those programs just were not very satisfied with what they had and, and therefore didn't support it. We'll talk more about yeah. it in just a moment. I want to bring Terry in. Sure. Terry, it, it is his book. He's written about <laughs> it, but it is kind of autobiographical because, uh, you know, he ha has your take, Sharon, on almost everything that's going on. But, Terry, why did you want to write the book? I was visiting with my financial advisor, Jay Penica, in Camp Hill, and he asked me if I'd ever heard of Sharon Taylor, and I hadn't, quite frankly. And uh, he relayed the story of how she had lost her job over uh, what, what he said was Title IX uh, retaliation. And uh, he suggested we meet and, and uh, talk to Sharon, and uh, we decided to get together at a local restaurant to see if we had anything uh, going, and uh, eventually it, it worked out to this book. Well, what attracted you to the story? Um, I, I kind of tend toward uh, uh, stories of redemption, and I felt that Sharon needed a redemption because she had never had an opportunity to give her side of the story. When she was uh, going through her travails at Lock Haven University, uh, she had a gag order put on her by the president of the university, and so horrible things were said about her on uh, radio and in the newspapers, but she never had a chance to say, yeah, but this is what really happened. So I wanted to give her that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Your book definitely does that. I mean, as I said, it, it is very autobiographical. Um, for the most part, it is from Sharon's point of view. It is, and, mm -hmm. and I and I don't apologize for that because uh, that was the intention to to give the other side of the story because everybody had heard all the things about, uh, you know, how terrible Sharon was and how all the lawsuits were her fault, which of course they weren't. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Sharon, let's provide a little bit of background here. You went to Lock Haven as a student. You're from <laughs> Coatesville, my hometown, right. and you wanted to go to Westchester, which everyone in Coatesville wanted to go to Westchester, <laughs> but you went to Lock Haven instead. But, but let me tell you why. I was, I was, all my teachers have been from you know, Westchester, and I, for all my life I was going to go to Westchester for physical education. I applied early in my senior year. I got accepted. I was ready to go, and in uh, the end of September, a teacher who had left Coatesville and come to Lower Dauphin when they opened the school at Lower Dauphin High School in Hummelstown uh, called me. She was a Lock Haven grad. She said, I'm going up to my alma mater for homecoming. Do you want to drive up to Harrisburg and ride up with me? And I said, sure. And I went up, spent the day, went to the football game, went to the parade, went to walked around campus, went home and told my parents that's where I was going to school. Mm. And never looked back. <laughs> but you went as an athlete. Yes. And what did you play at the... Uh, Lock Haven only had two sports for women at the time. That was field hockey and basketball, and I played both of those. Mm-hmm. So, But then you became a coach. You became a coach, and a, and a quite successful one. Uh, how many sports did you coach? My first job was at Susquehanna, where I coached field hockey. Oh, that's right. You went to Susquehanna hockey, first, yeah. Uh, first, and coached field hockey, and I started a tennis team there. So actually, when I applied for the job at Lock Haven, the tennis job was open, but we knew that my teacher and mentor, excuse me, Charlotte Smith, was going to be retiring at the end of that year. So I, I took that job, and then I began uh, in the second year coaching field hockey and lacrosse, mm-hmm. which were the two sports that Charlotte coached. Now, I'm going to cover decades in just a few, <laughs> just, a, just a minute or so, but uh, how many wins did you have in uh, field hockey? Uh, 333. How many national championships? Uh, six in field hockey, one in lacrosse. Okay. How did you become involved in lacrosse? Well, do- they were the coach. They were the sports Dr. Smith coached. Mm-hmm. Uh, she started, she was hired to coach basketball. She started a hockey team in 1945, the year I was born. I was eight months old when she started that. And then she started a lacrosse team in uh, 1970. And so uh, in 72 years now at Lock Haven, there have only been three coaches. The third one's in place right now. Very <laughs> very paternal-like, isn't it? <laughs> uh, in some ways. <laughs> yeah. But um, you would think within, and, and let me also mm. add here that uh, you were involved in a number of different organizations, and you were involved in Olympics, uh, involved in field hockey nationally. Um, you're considered uh, an expert on Title IX. You would think that Lock Haven would look at that and be thrilled. What happened? Well, they were for many, many years. Um, they were through the presidency of uh, Dr. Craig Willis, who was the person who uh, he came in in 82, uh, the same year the system was formed. And so he, he uh, was there for then 22 years. Uh, Keith Miller, who was a nice person, um, uh, but I think, you know, he and I got along well. He, he uh, But unfortunately, there wasn't the same kind of... Um, I think he didn't bring to the presidency the same kind of stature as as Craig had, and therefore other people tried to fill the vacuum in a sense of uh, uh, just thinking they should be able to call some shots. We had a one-year interim president, Barbara Dixon, who was was fine, and and then we have the current president, and uh, things really sort of rolled downhill from halfway through Keith Miller's tenure into the current president. Terry, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to what kind of reaction you've gotten to the book from the Lock Haven community and uh, from, from people overall. Well, I, I get a lot of thank yous for writing the book. Thank you for bringing the story out. 
I, I got a, I got a lot of positive feedback on it. It's been very gratifying. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, though, that when I read the book, um, I don't know whether corruption is the right word or not, but there's a lot that went on at Lock Haven <laughs> that if parents were aware, it, it, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't shine the university in a very positive light. I mean, you you tell the story of uh, a wrestling coach that uh, physically assaulted at least one of his wrestlers. Um, that there were other times. You had a football coach that when you were reassigned, Sharon was reassigned, bragged about it and kind of celebrated the fact. Um, what else? Um, you know, you just had a, a, oh, the basketball coach used an ineligible player. His son uh, was ineligible academically, but played him anyway. I mean, I hope that this isn't the kind of thing that goes on at uh, universities across the country. Well, apparently uh, uh, you'd be disappointed if you followed up on that question, Scott. Uh, I, I wanted to broaden the scope of the book, so I, I turned to Fresno State, which at at one point I thought was maybe the worst case scenario for uh, mistreating uh, women athletes and women uh, athletic uh, uh, administrators. And uh, talked to a, a woman named Diane Milutinovich out there, uh, at, at, formerly at Fresno State, and it was shocking uh, what the women went through. They, they were uh, humiliated, they had money taken away, they were fired, uh, all, all sorts of uh, retaliation. And I thought, well, th that's the worst case scenario I'm going to find until I looked at Florida Gulf Coast University. And, and I found out uh, that was probably worse. And, and you, you had all sorts of uh, uh, reasons for it, homophobia, uh, sexism, uh, just plain meanness. It just was hard to understand. And for some reason, the men view this as, as a zero-sum game. If the women get something then it must surely be taking something away from the men. And and truly, it's not that way, because with Title IX, if the women get something, the men on their side have to get it if you're going to keep the same proportions. Well, we're going to, because you do go into the book, you do go into just more than Sharon's story. Right. right. You do talk about uh, some of these other uh, stories as well. I uh, want to take a, okay, Sharon, I'll get to you in just a moment. I have to take a break here. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is C. Terry Walters, author of the book, The Lost Haven of Sharon Taylor. And Sharon Taylor herself, former Lock Haven University National Championship winning coach and athletic director. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Sharon, was something you wanted to say before the break? Well, I was just going to say that uh, as Terry talked about these different things and you asked, does this happen? You just have to look at things that are currently pending at places like Minnesota Duluth that got rid of a, a national championship several times over coach um, who was former national coach for the ice hockey, women's ice hockey, um, over salary and fired her because she was making too much money while the men's coach, who had never won anything, was making way more money than she was. But instead of even giving her a chance to take a cut, they just fired her outright to bring in someone uh, with less 
you know, for less money. And also at the University of Iowa, where a whole host of coaches, Iowa used to be sort of the pinnacle of the, the way to run an athletics program for both men and women. And, and then suddenly um, coaches were being fired, women's coaches were being fired, they were being replaced with male coaches for the most part. And the most recent one was a young woman by the name of uh, Tracy uh, well, she she was she's a Westchester graduate, and uh, she just was given no reason for being fired, but she was just let go. And and her athletes, four former athletes, took the case to the Office for Civil Rights. So that these things are happening all over the country, unfortunately, some forty five years after Title Nine. Let's go back to uh, your case in particular. Uh, you mentioned the four university presidents at Lock Haven when you were there. Uh, the second president. The second president, Keith Miller, um, his first day on the job, he kind of hinted to you <laughs> that there was a, a segment of, um, I don't know whether alumni, trustees, that there were people out there who thought you should retire. Well, actually, he didn't say that. He started telling me this apocryphal story about a woman at the last place he'd been. She'd been there for 30-some years, and, well, she was slowing down a little bit. <laughs> and uh, this was the very first time, we, well, the second time we met. I met him at his interview. but And uh, that, and, and he went through this thing about, uh, you know, maybe she should just have stepped back. And, uh, and as I walked back to my office, I thought, I went to my associate director, and I said, I think he was talking about me, <laughs> and uh, son of a gun. Uh, then as it came out, apparently some people had been talking to him, and he was trying to say it in a gentle way, uh, but that was basically what he was talking about, and, and that was when it started. And as Why? I said, he, fo he followed a very strong president who would not have ever let anyone— uh, as I said, Craig might have beat me up or beat us up occasionally on things, but he would never let anybody else beat any of his employees up, and—, and uh, why did they do it? Well, let me uh, let me just yeah. interrupt, go back a little bit. Um, Lock Haven had a reputation and a well-deserved reputation as uh, a powerhouse in wrestling. Yes. Uh, now that was back in your early days. Quite frankly, I mean, it was even before you in a lot of cases. The 60s, yeah. Um, that Lock Haven was up there with uh, the Division One schools, today's Division One schools, as a powerhouse uh, in, in wrestling. There was a group that formed in Lock Haven, around Lock Haven, called Plow, P-L-O-W, and they became your nemesis. Talk about them. Well, the acronym was Preserve the Le uh, Legacy of Wrestling, and they were, frankly, Two of them were my classmates. Um, some of them were, you know, they were all there in the 60s. But what had happened in the sport of wrestling, unfortunately, and this is the fault of people who were athletic directors, just like me, what had happened across the country from probably the late 70s, or certainly after the Civil Rights Restoration Act reinstated Title IX completely after the Supreme Court decision that sort of gutted it, uh, saying that monies had to go directly to programs that would be covered. Um, programs all over the country started dropping certain men's sports, and they blamed it on gender equity. They blamed it on the fact they had to put more money into women's sports. And, and it really wasn't true, because as you looked at budgets, as the NCAA looked at budgets, they were able to trace monies from year to year. Women's sports did increase in their funding. But what was happening in men's sports was most of the money was going into football and men's basketball. And the so-called Olympic sports, like wrestling, track, 
baseball, uh, not baseball, wrestling, track, uh, swimming. Those sports for men, unfortunately, at some schools are being cut. So what you had was a school like Lock Haven that still valued its wrestling programs. The only sports that schools that were left in Division One for the most part in wrestling were those where schools were really committed to putting money into the sport of wrestling. And so it, the, the gulf widened between the Penn States, where Lock Haven used to you know, clean up against wrestling Penn State year after year, but Penn State made a commitment. They hired, obviously, most recently, Kel Sanderson, and look what the Penn State story is. And so schools like Lock Haven, like Edinburgh, like Bloomsburg, that had a storied wrestling program with Russ Halk, who was a Lock Haven grad, um, Edinburgh, that came on after Bruce Baumgartner went there. Um, these were really great small wrestling schools, and frankly, the, it just got tougher and tougher and tougher to compete at the Division One level. The interesting thing was in the best year that Lock Haven wrestling ever had in Division One was 1996, and. I was still the athletic director at that point, and and we did very well in wrestling because wrestling was valued. It was valued by the institution, and it was valued in my office. But they wanted you out, and they wanted you out because, and according to the, the book, um, they wanted you out because they saw you as favoring women's sports and letting that legacy of wrestling go. But they didn't look at any facts in doing that. They spread rumors that I was going to take wrestling to Division Two. Well, anyone with a brain would have seen that if I had taken wrestling to Division Two, we probably would have had to look at our Division One uh, field hockey program, which Pat Rudy was then in place. She had take. I had promised her when she took the job that she could take it to Division One whenever she wanted, and she did almost immediately. So we had two Division One programs. Had wrestling gone to Division Two, it was very likely that field hockey would have followed. Uh, they said there was money that was there was questionable. I never controlled any money. Money was always controlled either by the Student Government Association, which funded our day-to-day. Expenses, and by the Lock Haven University Foundation, where we made application for scholarships, and we took money out of the you know wrestling monies went to wrestling athletes, field hockey monies went to field hockey. So with men's and women's basketball, so with baseball, softball, those were controlled over in the foundation area, and frankly, the um, the monies in women's sports were lower than in men's sports, and they, but they. The monies that they raised, they got to spend as they wished, mm. and that was a, the, with all of our programs. Lock Haven's football team came close to uh, setting a national record for most consecutive losses. Uh, when a high-profile uh, sports team like that, mm-hmm. the, the football team, is that unsuccessful, um, not only are coaches losing their jobs, and Lock Haven, that didn't happen. Uh, not only are coaches losing their jobs, but the athletic director takes some blame in many cases, mostly Division One schools. But the athletic director, people will point to the athletic director and say, what are you doing with this athletic department if your football team loses that many, many games? Could you have done anything differently to help that football team? No, and I think Terry has talked to some of the football coaches and head coaches, and they have, have verified the same thing. We did everything we could to get as much money in. But, but again, the, as the monies came in, they were designated for sport. That was the only place they could go. That couldn't be changed by anyone. So that is, and all the donations had to, all the scholarship monies had to be donated. Um, the 
fungible money that was there, the unrestricted money, the uh, accounts that where you could maybe spread some money was very much lower. In men's sports, men tend to give to a specific sport. We would get a lot of donations for women's athletics generally. We had all of our sport accounts. We had a restricted for men account and a restricted for women account and an unrestricted account. And those were the only um, funds that we had where anyone had any control over. And those were very, very limited. So the unfortunate thing was that Lock Haven had had five winning football seasons since 1960. And in 1960, I was in the 10th grade, so I don't really <laughs> think that <laughs> that I could take too much responsibility for that. But frankly, other schools put more money into football and men's basketball than they did perhaps their wrestling programs and things. Terry, what did you hear from those coaches? Uh, first of all, they seem to almost be apologizing for what happened to Sharon, and they said she did support the, uh, the, the football team as much as she could. One, uh, Sharon tells the story of one uh, assistant coach that came into her office to get more money, and she had to say no at that point, and on the way out he said, thank you, you've gotten us more money than anybody ever before you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. He wanted it for a, for a salary. It was his head coach had sent him to... Yeah. <laughs> to so okay, we talked about the wrestling and, and football. There was a all right, Sharon Taylor, a lightning rod for controversy. <laughs> a quote from USA Today. USA Today in 2010 did a story about all the things that were going on at Lockhaven. Uh, there was someone who had been involved in one of the lawsuits who said that Sharon Taylor hates men. <laughs> Your reaction to that? Well, all my male friends would be very shocked to hear that, and so would the folks who were uh, coaches there. If you read that article, I, I think Eric Brady came up with, Eric with this idea. Today yep, reporter. I think Eric came up with the, actually that gentleman that you referred to is the one who contacted Eric Brady to come in and uncover all of this, uh, you know, corruption in the athletics program. And he came in, and when he wrote the piece, it was a very, very positive piece from my standpoint. And he, he really, he, he talked to all sorts of people on campus. And in fact, the individual who did not turn up in such a, a positive light in the article called him and was just very irate and wanted him to write another article. And, and Eric just put it aside. He's, and he recently, if I may jump in, he recently <laughs> filed a third lawsuit against Stockhaven <laughs> University and was one of the few people who contacted me to tell me how wrong I was about uh, my opinions of Sharon Taylor. Before he had read the book. I, Before he I read am. the book. Yeah, he says, <laughs> if, if, what's in the, if what's in that book is what I think it is, you're really telling lies. Well, but at the same time, he did get settlements, two different settlements, right? He got the first settlement because the judge was so annoyed with the case and the, 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 the arguments made that he told the institution to settle it. He wasn't going to deal with it in his courtroom. The second one was a result of where they put him then, which was over in the development area, had nothing to do with the athletics program in terms of Mike having anything to do with him. He was selling advertising for the for the development area to try to raise money for athletics, and his issue was with the development, and and it was probably a dumb place to have put him, and and uh, and he ended up winning that case, but it was, had nothing to do with Sharon Taylor, the, the athletics department. How many lawsuits were fought against you that you were named in? Um, oh, I wasn't named. I wasn't named in that one. Um, the first one, as I said, I explained that. Um, there were 
two that were we won uh, the um, a swim coach and a and that was women's swimming by the way a swim coach and a basketball coach uh, there was a field hockey coach who probably won the greatest settlement and that was because she was not being paid uh, she filed a title seven it didn't even have anything to do with title nine it was a equal pay uh, kind of suit and so I so I don't know whether I didn't like women or I didn't like men. I mean, I had to figure that out because we had suits from both sides. And so uh, what I liked were student athletes, men and women, student athletes. And I, I have to admit that I have no idea whether athletic departments uh, face lawsuits uh, on a regular basis or not. So I have yeah. no idea. But when Terry wrote about them in the book, I'm just thinking to myself, that's a lot of, lot of lawsuits. Yeah. I mean, someone would read that and say, well, okay, there must be something there. Well, I think what they saw was when the first one got a, f a few thousand dollars, I think they thought, oh, if he could do that, I can do it. So I think that sort of... Uh, but uh, seriously, there there were there were issues that need... It all goes back to the fact that the way we fund our... In, in a small school, all the schools in the uh, conference... Uh, you know, the money has to come from donors because there are no other funds. It's not like at the big universities, uh, you know, Penn State or someplace where the athletic director has money that she can, uh, I say that, uh, she can uh, just approve for expenditures. It indeed <laughs> is a she at Penn State. And um, But it's very different at schools like ours. First, there's not much money to start with, and then everybody wants it to go to his or her sport. So what did you learn, the two of you learn, out of, the, out of this whole thing? Well, what I, when, when Terry first started to talk to me, and, and I have had some contact with his financial advisor as well, um, and when we started talking about this, I really wanted it to be a, 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 sport, a, a thing about how there had been some advances in women's athletics, because that had been the area in which I had, had worked prior to becoming the athletic director for the most part. But then as we went on, um, I think he really took the, the tack of not only looking at what could happen in programs and what should be our goals, but what was happening. And 45, 40 years later, was happening. And as you as said, it, it should not be a zero-sum game because that, that is just not the, the – we have sons and we have daughters. And that was the way I approached it when I became the director of athletics. And most of the coaches could see that, but there were there were coaches who were not happy with what they had, and and I it was a, it was an easy target. And as far as the whole plow group, the only thing that stopped them was finally that I took action against them, and we didn't win the case, but we didn't. It, it stopped. <laughs> it also cost you. It cost me, but it it it, it stopped. It cost and, you because you were not uh, you were brought up, and I think that's kind of unprecedented. You were going to get uh, emeritus status. Well, there was there. Let me just put it this way: there was no one in thirty years that had not got it. So that just uh, let the, your listeners think about that and figure out why <laughs> for yeah. themselves. Well, there's a lot there. And uh, C. Terry Waters is the author of the book, The Lost Haven of Sharon Taylor. Sharon Taylor, thank you very much for being with us thank today. Thank you so My much. Pleasure. I really You're it. listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Boxing champion Muhammad Ali, who passed away last Friday, not just an incredible athlete, Ali was outspoken when it came to race and religion in America at a time when few, if any, black athletes spoke up. His national prominence and actions pioneered the way for other black athletes to enter the realms of politics and activism. Dickinson College visiting assistant professor Gregory Callis, Gregory Callis is here to speak about Ali, the history of social action amongst black athletes, and his book, Men's College Athletics and the Politics and Racial Equality, Five Pioneer Stories of Black Manliness, White Citizenship, and American Democracy. Professor Callis, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, Scott. Thanks. We, we actually talked about the book a, a while back, but uh, have to admit that uh, when I think of black athletes who... Uh, had a voice socially, had a voice when they talked about racial issues, had a voice talking about religion. Muhammad Ali was the first one that came to mind. Talk about Ali's place and what a pioneer he was. Yeah, I mean, I think Ali so important to American culture in a whole lot of ways. But if we think about the connection of athletes and activism, Ali is right at the forefront. And there certainly had been athletes who had spoken out on issues before him, Jackie Robinson, for right. example, and, and you know even Bill Russell to some extent. But... Ali opened up the floodgates in some way. And I, and I think, for me, the most extraordinary moment of Ali's career is, is in February of 1964, after he wins the heavyweight title. He beats Sonny Liston. And you think about it, he's a charismatic guy. He had won a gold medal in 1960. He's at the top of the world. And, you know, two days later, he announces that he's converting to the Nation of Islam, which was wildly unpopular amongst most Americans. And uh, he wants people to stop calling him Cassius Clay. Again, tremendously unpopular. And uh, he has this amazing statement where he says, I, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I'm, you know, I'm free to do what I want. And I think that was a kind of declaration of independence. And it inspired a whole range of people to realize that uh, you know, athletes didn't have to play along with the media. They didn't have to play along with the establishment that they could follow the courage of their convictions because those were unpopular things. And, of course, his opposition to the Vietnam War was tremendously unpopular amongst many uh, when, when he refused to be drafted. But he uh, seemed to be willing to sacrifice a lot for his beliefs. And I think that inspired a whole range of, of athletes. And I know it did. If you, if you read what other athletes say about him and how inspirational he was in that regard. Well, give me some examples. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, somebody like Arthur Ashe, even, who was a more modest activist, but talked about seeing what Ali did and realizing that he couldn't, he couldn't sort of sit back on the sideline and not get involved in some ways, that he admired Ali. Even if he didn't agree with Ali, he admired him and it made him realize that he needed to do more. And, and that helped inspire him to, to conduct a campaign against apartheid in South Africa. Uh, in more modern days, people like LeBron James writing in to say how inspirational Ali had been to him and, and thinking about the place uh, that, that black athletes or all athletes could occupy as kind of cultural forces for change. I think um, just a, a couple off the top of my head. You know, today and uh, Ali's funeral services will be uh, tomorrow, uh, but in the week since he passed away, um, there's just been overwhelming and outpouring of you know, honoring him, black and white, around the world. It's been called uh, 
well, he called himself, and uh, many people would agree, was the greatest uh, boxer of all time. Yeah. Although there were other people who were father with the sport closer, say, ah, he wasn't the greatest, probably top two or three, something like that. But still, he's been honored, all kinds of accolades coming his way. But going back to 1964, it wasn't that way. And part of it was because the way he said it, that you know, white America in particular, and I don't know about black America, but white America in particular is, who was this black guy yelling, he's the greatest, and, you know, he just beat, okay, he won a fight. He beat the heavyweight champion of the world. Now he is the champion. But kind of for, you know, I know that we have people who were born after 1964 listening to the program. What was it like at that time? Well, I think it right. I mean, I think his his confidence, his outspokenness, I think it shocked people. And and the model before Ali of the longtime, you know, black heavyweight champion, the most esteemed champion before Ali was Joe Lewis. Mm-hmm. And Joe Lewis, tremendously popular, but he was a guy who was very quiet, was very modest. I mean, he was a tremendous boxer, but a guy who really uh, emphasized kind of keeping a low profile deliberately, you know, he refused to take pictures with white women because of, you know, didn't want to alienate any potential, you know, white Americans who were uncomfortable with that. I mean, he was a guy who really toned down his act. And so Ali was, you know, the opposite in terms of being demonstrative, in terms of being outspoken, of being so celebratory of himself. And, and I think it was shocking to people, right? Yeah, that this was a guy who was, as I say, it was a kind of declaration of independence. I am a, a person. I am going to say what I want to say. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm not going to be restrained. Um, and there had been other people like that, but I think what made Ali distinct was that he had that sense of being independent, but it was linked to to a set of beliefs. It was linked to a set of, a sense of, of, of righteousness, of morality, right? His faith, and his his opposition to the war and those kinds of things. And I have a, a, a soundbite here. We're going to play for you in a few minutes uh, talking about the, the Vietnam War and the draft. Uh, but let's talk about uh, his Muslim faith. As you said, two days after he beat Sonny Liston, uh, he announces that uh, he's converting to Nation of Islam, becoming a member of the Nation of Islam. Um, and, you know, he pulls no punches, so to speak. I shouldn't even use that. Um <laughs> In saying that uh, white America is really his enemy, and I mean, he, he used those words exactly, but many times when he talked about it, talked about how white people were really what was the, the problem against blacks in this country. That was so unpopular at the time. Oh, tremendously unpopular. It would be unpopular today, but at the it, time, then, it was it was even worse. Yeah, that's right. And, and the Nation of Islam... Just a little background for those who are unfamiliar, but the Nation of Islam at that time, especially, this was a religion that really was based on, uh, at the time, its tenants sort of depicted white people as oppressors across the globe, as an equi- you know, they often use the phrase devils. And this was, I mean, tremendously controversial, tremendously controversial for not only white Americans, but also black Americans, the, the, especially African Americans in the, the black Christian churches who were very anti the nation of Islam. Yeah, let me just interrupt. I mean, for some historical perspective, Malcolm X, Nation of Islam, Martin Luther King, and Jackie Robinson were not happy with how Malcolm X talked about uh, you know civil rights at the time. Absolutely right, and so uh, so so there was again when you think about that outspokenness of Ali, it was an unpopular outspokenness, and it was one that he right he was unapologetic in calling out. Uh, white America for creating uh, a set of circumstances that victimized black people 
and and just the way that Malcolm X uh, had argued in a lot of his uh, speeches. And so this was, and that's why in that press conference, in some ways, I think a lot of the journalists were trying to to kind of convince Muhammad Ali that to 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 take it back and and to say you know to step back from that that position, but he refused to do so. Right? I mean, he was. Uh, you know, and and it's you know you might say, well, why did he believe that, or, or how much did he believe that? And this is a guy who, when he came back from the Olympics, a national hero, after he had played the part of a kind of compliant athlete, he had talked positively about the United States and said that, you know, in terms of the Cold War, he'd rather be living in the U.S. because you know even though African Americans had a tough time, people were working on it. I mean, he had been positive. Comes back to you know he has victory parades, comes back to his hometown of Louisville, goes to a restaurant, they refuse to serve him in his hometown because he's black. They use racial epithets against him, uh, insult to injury. He leaves the restaurant and, and a group of white bikers starts harassing him and his friends. And it's no wonder that he begins to, 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 to harbor some animosities. And of course, later in his life, you know, by the time the mid-1970s rolls around, the Nation of Islam has really migrated away from that and becomes more, much more traditional uh, Islamic faith and, and abandons a lot of that the kind of racial language that it had in earlier years. And Ali himself shows that evolution as well. But but in that moment, I think there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of mistrust, quite frankly, of white America. So the Vietnam War was raging at the time when we go from uh, 64 to like uh, 1967, 68. Uh, and Ali refuses to, to be drafted. And I want to play something for you here. This was from a college campus where he was actually debating with a group of white students. And this is a, a soundbite of Ali talking to those students. All of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My name is a white people, not Viet Congs or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. What do you think? Well, I think it was uh, it's a great example of, of, of that vibrancy of Ali and of that the controversial nature of Ali. And I will say... Um, Ali was actually wildly popular on college campuses uh, to some extent because he opposed the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Black and white students, I think, really registered with that. And it is amazing to think about that because Ali's in that speech criticizing white America. Presumably, a lot of the people in the audience are white. Almost all of them that I saw, yeah. Yeah. And and here here he is just laying it on them. But um, I think there was a recognition that there was something unjust about uh, the Vietnam War and about asking black Americans who were the victims of oppression to do to, to participate in this war. Um, and certainly some some inequalities in terms of what, what Ali talked about with religion, saying you don't recognize my freedom of religion and um, the fact that he was convicted of uh, draft evasion despite being what he said was a conscientious objector as a result of his faith. And, and I just it's an amazing, uh, I think an amazing chapter in history when we think about it. And eventually... The public begins to shift to Ali's side, but but at first there's a lot of pushback against him, and and especially older Americans, middle-aged Americans who had fought in World War II, who had fought in World War II, and and some of those folks, and I'll say there's probably people listening right now who still think of Ali in a negative light for refusing to serve. Mm-hmm. I know when Ali lit the Olympic torch in 1996, Bob Feller, 
the uh, baseball player was a big critic of that, saying that they shouldn't honor a, a draft dodger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so it's still controversial to some extent, but but I think a lot of people, you know, as opinion turned against the war, opinion turned towards Muhammad Ali in that mm. regard. Along those same lines as uh, that soundbite, uh, he famously said that no Vietnam, no Viet Cong ever called me the N word. Yeah. Uh, so why would I want to go and fight when uh, he was making the point, making the comparison here in this country? But I want to go ahead a, a little bit, as I say, a little farther ahead in time. Um, especially uh, when Ali was fighting Joe Frazier. That first fight, Joe Frazier, I I mean, today, for those who remember it, it was just incredible. I mean, the amount of hype that that got. It wasn't on television. Uh, I was telling you a story about, uh, well, it was on closed circuit, I think, at that time, Mm -hmm. Um, but not on network television. But anyway, that uh, the, the entire country was just glued Following this, it was going to be the, the fight of the century. It probably was when you when you think about it. But some of the criticisms of Ali, or some of the things pointed out in the past week since he died, is how he treated Joe Frazier, um, calling him a gorilla, uh, saying he was an Uncle Tom, and Joe Frazier to, to the day he died. Even though people tried to bring them back together, to the day he died, Joe Frazier resented Ali for how he was treated. So Ali, and actually I even heard a case, a uh, story of Chuck Wepner was a white uh, boxer who said that uh, Ali wanted him to uh, call him the N-word, and he refused to do it. They went on the Mike Douglas show, and Ali whispered in Douglas's ear that this is what he called me. And Wepner said, that never happened. That wasn't true. I didn't. I never did that. So Ali wasn't, you know, he wasn't a saint, put it that way. No, but he was always interested in drumming up attention and drumming up the gate. He knew that if he created hoopla around him, created hype and buzz, it, it would lead to more financial opportunities, more entertainment. He saw himself as an entertainer and an athlete. And I think that's one of the lasting legacies of Ali, right? That not just... Uh, athletics, but the idea of the athletic as a celebrity and an entertainer. And he drew from um, a professional wrestler. He watched a professional wrestler named Gorgeous George and oh, saw how he saw how people responded to him and, and, and realized that he, he kind of started to copy that as a way of getting more attention. Um, but yeah, it could be very heartful and it could be uh, done in ways that, you know, certainly Joe Frazier is a great example of that. Joe Frazier said that if he had been at the Olympics in 96, he would have pushed Ali into the torch when he was <laughs> really? lighting it. I didn't hear that. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of his lines. Uh, and it was. I mean, uh, Ali would was call Frazier an Uncle Tom, said that anyone who supports Frazier is an Uncle Tom, would make fun of the way he spoke. I mean, he could be really mean-spirited. And, and uh, in ways that I think are, are hard to kind of come to terms with now. And that fight was a huge event. It was, uh, put it this way, one of the great stories about that fight is that Frank Sinatra got a media pass to take photographs for Life magazine because he couldn't get tickets to get into the fight yeah. any other way. Yeah. Um, it was at Madison, Squ- Madison Square Garden. And right. Just in, in, there was Super Bowl-type hype with that before there were... So, just think if there was social media back in those days, what that would have been like. Oh, it would have been wild. Absolutely. It, it, Twitter would have exploded. It would have. We have an email here from Tim who brings up a good point because uh, in the last week, we've heard about uh, Ali training at Deer Lake in uh, Schuylkill County. Mm-hmm. And Tim wants to know, did Ali experience comment on racism during the time he spent in Pennsylvania? I believe he had a training camp at school 
Pico County at one point. Uh, and I've heard a number of stories, and it kind of just poses what you had just described about Ali the showman. So many stories of people talking about they would just show up at Deer Lake to watch him train, and he would take them around, showing them very friendly joking with them and all that totally different person so but have you heard of any stories in Schuylkill County that uh, where he experienced racism I have not I mean not in particular in that location Um, you know he would talk in general terms about you know having some people say nasty things to him but I, I can't recall anything specifically in that in that location but he was he was an extreme extrovert in the sense that yeah he was always willing to talk to somebody, take a picture with somebody, pose with somebody, very friendly. And even with Frazier, that's one of the, a great example of this. Frazier, he says all these horrible things about. He says that, you know, it's, it's he calls Joe Frazier the great white hope, mm-hmm. which is the tremendous irony there, right? But then, you know, if you in, in his quieter moments after the fight, after the first fight, after Frazier beats Ali, he says, you know, I got beat. Um, anyway, it's, it's too bad. Joe Frazier's a nice guy. He's got good kids. You know, when it, when it was when the, the spotlight was turned off, he was, you know, he, he switched from being entertainer to being himself, uh, and it was a different kind of uh, a different kind of person, I guess. But so we're we've been hearing a lot in the last week, and we'll hear much more tomorrow at his uh, funeral service. Uh, but uh, about Ali's legacy, but let's narrow it down a little bit. His legacy, as far as um, you know, a social, religion, racial. How do you see his legacy? I see his legacy as somebody who really transformed sport, transformed the relationship between sports and race, and and transformed the uh, the, the the role that the athlete plays as a kind of social and, and cultural and political force. I mean, I think, um, as I said at the outset, it's it's almost inconceivable to think about some of the activism that came after Ali without Ali, that he really did, you know, we think about the Black Power Salute in 1968. At the Olympics, Mexico City. At the Olympics, Mexico City. There's no way that that happens without Ali doing what he did, without Ali converting to Islam, defying the draft. He ignited a spark. And, you know, you might say that that flame went out for a little while in the the 80s and the 90s, but I think we see embers of that, what we talked about back in the fall with the University of Missouri football protests, mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, players like LeBron James wearing I Can't Breathe t-shirts, with, you know, that sense of, of a social commitment and of using athletic clout and prominence to really lobby on behalf of issues, even if they're unpopular. And I think that's a really, um, that that's the most important aspect, I think, of, of, of his legacy in that regard. I hope I'm not asking the same question. We have about a minute left, yeah. but would the civil rights movement have been different without a Muhammad Ali? I certainly think it would have been different. I mean, you know, this is, of course, uh, it's hard to say, right? right but but right. yeah, but I mean, I think if we think about it, when Ali makes his, his, his declaration of his faith in 64, Black Power really starts circulating in 1966. I mean, he's right at that moment, and he, I think, helps instigate that emergence of Black Power, helps instigate some of the transformations that come. The whole Black is Beautiful campaign, people wearing afros, um, uh, Black history departments in college. I mean, I think he's central to a lot of those things happening. He's not the only one, but he again, helps ignite that spark. I have to admit, admit that just sitting here, I can't picture that time period without Muhammad Ali. 
Yeah, I can't. I just can't do it. Gregory Callis is uh, the uh, Dickinson College visiting professor, assistant professor of history. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Coming up tomorrow, we're getting into warmer weather and sunshine. Skin cancer is our our uh, topic tomorrow. Skin cancer and skin care that comes up on tomorrow's program. <laughs>